Turn now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Our primary focus will be on verses 20 through 26 on the Beatitudes, but I'll begin reading in verse 17. This is God's holy, inerrant word, inspired by the Holy Spirit and written for your edification. Please give it your full attention. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leave for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, you know that Luke often presents two different kingdoms throughout his Gospel. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. In this portion of Luke's Gospel, Jesus begins to teach his disciples the contrast of ethics between these two kingdoms. He contrasts that which is temporal over that which is eternal. That which is evil over against that which is holy. And the contrast really couldn't be more stark. Just as there is an absolute contrast between darkness and light, so there is an absolute contrast between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of of light. And notice that as Jesus begins his teaching on kingdom ethics, the text says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. See, the sermon was most pointedly directed at the twelve and the other disciples who were with him that day. Now, up to this point, they've had a wonderful internship with him, so to speak. Uh, They've seen him heal people. He was healing them right there. We've seen him cast out demons. Many were coming to him for uh, 
healing in just this manner. But now he wants them to know, listen, you've seen who I am as the Messiah and the great power and authority that I have. But I need you to know that if you are to be my disciples, these are the ethics. These are the morals by which you must live. These were the things that his disciples needed to know about the kingdom that they had been chosen to serve in. And so what we have here then is a list of ethics that disciples are to keep. Christ had come into the world to usher in the kingdom of God. And if his disciples were going to be servants in his kingdom, then they must understand the ethics of the kingdom. This meant that this list of ethics is directed at us as well. As we too are disciples or are followers of Christ. We are learning followers of Christ. And if you are going to be a servant in the kingdom of God, then you too must know the ethics of the kingdom of God. In this passage, Jesus lists four Beatitudes, that is, he lists four pronouncements of blessings. That's what a Beatitude is. He lists four pronouncements of blessings upon those who, by the grace of God, live by the right kingdom ethics. But each Beatitude corresponds to and is coupled with a woe. Woe are you. A woe is simply a pronouncement of curse or judgment. And so as we continue through this sermon, we will look at each beatitude together with its corresponding woe. You'll notice that they go together. They're not written together. It starts with the beatitudes or the blessings and it uh, ends with the woes or the pronouncements of judgment, but they correspond with one another. And so we'll look at each blessing together with its corresponding woe. And so let's begin with the first beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, it's very important that we understand Jesus's use of poor here, and really of his uh, the usage of language throughout this section of the Beatitudes. You see, Jesus is not blessing; he's not pronouncing a blessing for for everyone who is simply poor or who has little in this life. The poverty that he speaks of here is a spiritual poverty. Jesus continues to use uh, earthly language to. Help bring about a spiritual understanding of things. And so Jesus uses the poor here as a metaphor. Those who are poor in this world often recognize their neediness and their want. And in like manner, those whom Jesus addresses in this beatitude are those that recognize their spiritual neediness and want. They realize, that is, that they are sinners in need of grace, that they need salvation because of their sins. 
Blessed are those that are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see, a disciple recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy and sees his need for grace. Of course, a disciple cannot do this. One cannot do this apart from the miraculous, supernatural work of God in that person's life. God must open their eyes to see this neediness. But that's not just something that occurs in that first moment when Christ opens their eyes. It's a way of living. Knowing who we are. Knowing how we've transgressed God's holy law. Knowing that we have sinned against the Almighty. And recognizing then our dependency and need for the amazing grace of God. But on the other hand, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. See, judgment is pronounced upon those who are rich in the kingdom of this world. They do not see their spiritual poverty because they're too busy seeking after the temporal riches of this world, perhaps with regard to material possessions or with fame or power. For some, it may be even their own good works. It's not just a material thing. But rather, finding themselves and looking for the things of this world, the things of this creation to fulfill all their needs, ultimately looking to their own self to provide for their satisfaction, to provide their own fulfillment. The Pharisees that Jesus often encountered were those who were rich, not just because they had perhaps some material possessions, but because they felt like their own works made them righteous. They had all they needed. They followed God's law. They were righteous in their own eyes. They were the rich. They did not see their spiritual want. And so for those who pursue such things as these, the things of this world, the things that the kingdom of this world provides, whether it be money or material possessions, fame, power, prestige. Those who seek these things have their consolation now. They have their reward now. But it's a temporal reward. It will not last. It will not continue on into eternity And so you begin to see immediately the ethical contrast between the two kingdoms, don't you? What a temptation, you see, the kingdom of this world puts before depraved creatures who by their nature are instant gratifiers, who want to have now rather than later. The kingdom of this world is very seductive. And just as our first parents saw the fruit of the forbidden tree as good for food, a delight to the eyes, and which could make one wise, 
So all the pleasures of this world are seductively tempting. And you can make yourself rich with these things, but if you place them as your highest good, they will not satisfy. They cannot ultimately satisfy. In fact, they will bring you to judgment. That's why Jesus pronounces the curse, the woe to them. For those who seek after such things. If instead, however, you recognize your spiritual poverty and recognize God, God himself, God alone, as your highest good, the absolute highest good, then you will inherit the riches of the kingdom of God by grace. The second blessing and corresponding woe really kind of builds upon the first. He says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. See, those who are poor can oftentimes be hungry as well. They have not the things with which to purchase or to gain food. And so Christ not only gives spiritual riches to the poor, but he spiritually nourishes them as well. He is the source of all that is good, all that we need, the source of all good in this life, and especially the source of all that is spiritually good. And so again, the hunger here is not a physical hunger, but a spiritual hunger, a spiritual hunger that the psalmists express so vividly. We read some of the psalmist's words earlier in this service. For example, in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2, we read, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Also, Psalm 63, verse 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, that's a land that is poor. It it doesn't have. It recognizes not its... Uh, the things that it has. It recognizes that it is without, that is. And what does it do? It hungers and thirsts for what it needs. The water to fall upon it. The rain to come down so that it will have life. That's what the psalmist is saying with regard to his soul. On my own, I have not. I am bankrupt. I need you. Pour your water down on me. Oh God, send forth your spirit and give me life. It hungers. It thirsts. But these psalmists really beg the question, how will those who hunger now be satisfied? 
And the answer comes in the person and work of Christ. You see, Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. On another occasion, John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, the answer to spiritual hunger is feeding upon Christ. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? What does it mean to hunger for him? Well, we could spend all morning and afternoon discussing that. But I might point out that in Matthew's account of this sermon, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Christ, beloved, is our righteousness. If we depend upon our own righteousness, we will never enter the kingdom of God. Just as many of the Pharisees. Who thought they were self-righteous. They didn't hunger and thirst for Christ. That's why there was constant battle between he, him, and, and, and them. Because they didn't see their need. They didn't hunger for the righteousness that he could give. They didn't see their own spiritual bankruptcy. Their lack of righteousness in their own lives. And so they didn't thirst or hunger for the righteousness of Christ. But those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ will be satisfied, for it will be imputed, or it will be credited to them. They will possess not a righteousness of their own, but the very righteousness of Christ, which clothes us, which makes us rich, See, if we depend upon ourselves, then we are blind to who we truly are. But Christ is righteous, and he bore our sins on the cross and then gave to us his perfect righteousness. And those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ will be satisfied. And furthermore, they will, by the grace of God, begin to hunger and thirst for righteous living. And also they will hunger for Christ to return, to bring His righteous rule to consummation, to its end. Bring it in full at His return. Those, however, who are full now, they shall be hungry, Jesus says. That is, those who gorge upon the things of this world will have no comfort in eternity. Again, the temptation of this world is very alluring. Soren Kierkegaard, he tells a a very uh, illustrative story about a duck that was flying with his flock in the springtime northward across Europe. And during the flight, he came down in a Danish barnyard where there were some tame ducks. 
and he enjoyed some of their corn. He, he stayed with them for a while. He stayed for an hour, and then for a day, and then for a week, and then for a month. And finally, because he relished the good fare and the safety of the barnyard, he stayed all summer. But one autumn day, when the flock of wild ducks were winging their way southward again, they passed over the barnyard and their mate heard their cries. And he was stirred with a strange thrill of joy and delight and with a great flapping of wings, he rose in the air to join his old comrades again in their flight. But he found that his good fare had made him so soft and heavy that he could not rise higher than the eaves of the barn. And so he dropped back again to the barnyard and said to himself, Oh well, my life is safe here and the food is good. And every spring... And autumn, when he heard the wild ducks calling, his eyes would gleam for a moment. And he would begin to flap his wings. But finally, the day came when the wild ducks flew over him and uttered their cry. But he paid not the slightest attention to them. It's a sad story, isn't it? You see, when we begin to hunger and thirst for the things of this world, it begins to drown out. The call, the gospel, that is so sweet and precious to the one who does actually hear it. Let's not be like the duck in Soren Kierkegaard's story. Let us not be like those who care for the things of this world and forget of the true beauty of what we were created for. To live for God and his kingdom. For sinners, this only comes by recognizing our need and begin to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. Thirdly, he says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, Jesus, of course, is not condoning sulkiness and condemning laughter here. Laughter is actually a very good thing for the soul. Proverbs 17.22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine. And joy is, is often expressed with laughter. And so what Jesus is condoning are those who weep over the right things. And he is condemning those who laugh about the wrong things. In essence... He is proclaiming a blessing upon those who mourn over the things that have come about as a result of the fall. One commentator put it well. He says, we are to weep or mourn over lost souls, over people who will go into eternal darkness without Christ. We are to weep over the world's misery, over the injustice that falls on so many helpless people, over the unfairness that victimizes the weak, over child abuse, over battered women, over adultery, over divorce, over betrayals, over rejection, over loneliness, over those who laugh now, but who, unless they turn to Christ, will suffer God's condemnation forever. End quote. 
You see, ethically, those who are citizens of the kingdom of God mourn over sin and its results. Ultimately, we are called to mourn over our own sins and to hate them and to seek after righteousness. But as Jesus says in the corresponding, Woe, those who live according to the kingdom of this world will have their laughs now. But later they will mourn and weep over their eternal condition. Now last, he says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And again, we must not not misunderstand the intention of Christ here. He is not blessing those who are rejected because of who they are in and of themselves. He's referring to those who are rejected on account of their servitude to Christ in his kingdom. Those who are disciples and serve in Christ's kingdom will be persecuted. Remember that the two kingdoms are at odds with one another. So much so that they are at war with one another. Now this doesn't mean that every unbeliever that you ever meet will ridicule and persecute you. Or that you cannot get along with unbelievers at times means that when the world knows that you are in Christ's kingdom, it will despise and hate you. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Persecution, you see, is a sign that you are part of the kingdom of God. It is a result of being a part of the kingdom of God. Just as it was a sign for the prophets of old when they were murdered on account of their testimony for God. But it's more than just a sign. It comes with a reward. Just as the first century church rejoiced in trials and tribulations, so we're told in Acts, the book of Acts and other places, so too we should rejoice in them. For our suffering will result in a great reward, the reward of heaven, the reward of being near our God in heaven. On the other hand, those who are spoken well of by this world, that is, they live in the ways of the kingdom of this world and they're praised by the world for living in such ways. Their ethics are different. They don't live according to the standard of of God's law. And they're praised and thought of well for it. You see, do you see what, what... What Jesus is saying here, it's not always about those big things, but even those little tiny things, those ways of getting ahead, whether it be on a sports team or in business, whatever the case may be, you know, I know this isn't right, but it's going to help me. And we advance and we move forward and we're thought well of. That's not how a Christian lives, is what Jesus is saying. We live in accordance with the standards of God's word. And when we do that, 
the world will hate you and persecute you. Just as it persecuted the prophets, even more just as it persecuted Christ himself. The ethics of a disciple in the kingdom of God then are poverty, hunger, weeping, and persecution. (laughs) That's what Jesus says. Ultimately, these things are spiritually qualified. Notice what Jesus is doing, right? He's he's turning this world upside down. What the world deems worthy, respectable, and important is, is, is turned on its head. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It is rather a holy kingdom. The ethics of the kingdom of God are totally contrary to the ethics of this world. If Jesus' disciples were going to serve in his kingdom, then they needed to know the ethical standards by which they must live. And this would be hard, of course, in a fallen world, but these beatitudes would help them know the standards that were placed upon them. And so the Sermon on the Mount meant for what was meant for their sanctification. And if we just take a simple definition, one given by the Westminster Shorter Catechism for sanctification, it says, it is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And that's what these Beatitudes are all about. If you think about it, The first and the third Beatitudes are about dying more and more unto our sin. To recognize our spiritual poverty and to mourn over our sins is to begin to die more and more to them. But the second and the fourth Beatitudes are about living more and more unto righteousness. For we are to hunger and thirst for Christ and his righteousness. To live in accordance with it. And persecution and trials are meant for our growth in holiness and righteousness. You see, beloved, Jesus died on the cross and atoned for your sins. But he also, in addition to this, poured out his spirit upon us so that we might live according to the power of the ethics of the kingdom of God. Now, in this life, we'll never perfectly meet this standard. But it is a good standard to test yourself against. It's a good standard to look at and observe daily in your life. Am I walking in conformity to it? When looking at these blessings and woes, we are to ask ourselves which kingdom we are representing. Which kingdom lines up with our values, our goals, our ethics? Are you living according to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world? It'd be nice if we could all say that we live according to the kingdom of God all the time, that we always kept these standards. But of course, we do not. That's why I believe the Sermon on the Mount does not point us first and foremost to ourselves. Now, there's no doubt that it's telling us how we ought to live, what we ought to be striving for, 
But these Beatitudes ultimately point us to Jesus Christ. He was rich beyond all comparison, yet for the sake of his people became poor and took our sins upon himself. He is the only one who truly hungered and thirsted for righteousness. For he was the only one who ever lived a righteous life with respect to God's law. He may never have mourned over his own personal sin, for he never had any or committed any sin. But he mourned over the sins of his people. We see him doing this as he mourns over Jerusalem. And who was more persecuted than Jesus himself? A persecution which ultimately led to the cross. See, this sermon tells us how we ought to live, but it also tells us that Jesus is the one who truly lived it. It tells us that we are sinners in need of Jesus to save us. And so if you are in Christ, then you are blessed for Jesus has saved you from your sins and he has given you God's word. He's given you the Bible, which is really one large sermon that tells you ultimately about who he is and what he requires of you. And he has given you even more, for he has given you himself to abide with you by his spirit so that you might be renewed after his very image and so be able to live according to his kingdom ethics. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we thank you for sending Christ to us who is our righteousness. And may we always cling to him. May we recognize that we are those who are great sinners and only have riches in him. May we share the good news that we've experienced in our own lives with others. Even though at times this might bring persecution, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to proclaim the good news of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.